from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Let's look to Him in prayer. Jesus, You once told Your disciples that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. We ask for the truth about ourselves that You would set us free. For Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to think about this community that was so impressed with itself. The church had certainly caught that plague, maybe never left it. And about Jesus, as we introduce and place in context his words to them. This is uh, a city, Laodicea, in the Lycus Valley. It's one of three cities in a region. Colossae, the letter to the Colossians, is just 11 miles east and a city called Heriopolis, is six miles north. The city itself sits in the center of crossroads going east and west from Ephesus, 100 miles in one direction, into the interior of the country. So it was a major trade route that way. And then from Pergamum in the north down to the Mediterranean Sea in the south. And so it was a center of commerce. It had a major and leading banking and financial center. It was the richest city in its Region. We know that in the year 17, that earthquake we talked about last week that destroyed so many places, it, it devastated Laodicea as well, and they needed the help of the Roman government. But an earthquake in A.D. 60, just 40-some years later, they said to the Roman government, no thanks, we got it covered, we'll rebuild it ourselves, because they had prospered so much. They had all the funding they Needed. We don't need you, they said. One of the ancient historians Tacitus said, Laodicea arose from the ruins, 
by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. This is their culture. They uh, had an industry for wool export, and they had a particularly uh, soft black wool, which was greatly desired around the world. And they had a world-famous medical school that in its school had a school for eye care, and they had developed a salve with some kind of powder that they manufactured there that was sought the world over because it helped people with eye problems. It's a pretty significant city. The Lycus River, which ran through it, however, was described like this, turbid with white mud, nauseous and undrinkable. The one big problem with this city is that it wasn't like the cities near it. Colossae had cool, refreshing spring water to drink that bubbled up. And Areopolis sat on hot springs, and those hot springs were medicinal and sought after. But the water that they received had to be imported by aqueduct some five miles, and by the time it left the hot spring out of which it poured and arrived into the city to drink, it was lukewarm and filled with calcium carbonate, and it was barely drinkable. And to this church in this city, Jesus comes. And he says to them, you need to remember me. You need to know what your problem is. And you need to know what the prescription is. He begins with himself as he does in all his letters. And he says to them, look, I know that you're very impressed with yourselves. You need to be impressed with me. I am, he says in verse 14, I am the the Amen. I am certainly true. And what I am telling you about yourself, that you are naked, bankrupt, it's true. And I know you find that astoundingly difficult to believe. But then he says, I am the faithful and true witness. He says, witness there, that's, that's the word for martyr. It became to be known as a a word used for those who had died bearing witness for the faith. And Jesus is reminding them, Oh friends, I am the one. I am the true one who in his zeal for the glory of God and for the good of your soul was a martyr for you. I gave my life for you, he's saying. I died your death on the cross. That would have come as such, in some ways, as a rebuke to them. You haven't been a faithful and true witness for me. You're too lukewarm for that. But it would have been a place of such hope too. A a word of hope. He isn't like us. He isn't fickle of heart. He's faithful. And he says, you need to be impressed with me. I am the beginning of God's creation. Now, our Jehovah's Witness friends and 4th century Arians as well, misinterpret verses just like this and mistakenly twist the truth about Jesus to, to force upon this verse what the rest of the Bible clearly says is not true of Jesus, that He is somehow the first created thing, you know, that He's sort of the beginning of all the created things, that He's not really the eternal God, but that he had a start here. Now that that cannot be what John is saying. 
I mean, the rest of this book unfolds. If you go to chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the, the picture in heaven of even the angelic created beings falling at the feet of Jesus to worship Him. And the, and the book of Revelation says, worship God only. We could turn to many other places in the Bible. This does not necessarily bear the weight of that kind of interpretation. In fact, it cannot because of the rest of what the Bible says. In fact, the word itself can mean other things. Your NIV says the ruler of God's creation. It, it, can, it, it can be uh, that he is, he is the source of God's creation. In fact, my own position on it is, is that he is saying, I am in my resurrection from the dead. I am the source of all God's new creation. You need life, you get it from me. You need anything, you get it from me because I am the fountain from which everything else comes. That's what he's saying. And so, you can imagine a citizen in Laodicea as the men gather around the water cooler. They're kind of drinking this lukewarm calcium carbonate water and they're saying to themselves, I'm so tired of this water. This water, this water is just too far from its source. Jesus is saying to them, you're lukewarm because you're too far from me. Your source. So listen to me. I'm certain about the things I'm saying about you and you can get from me the very things I call you to. That's what Jesus is saying in the first place. Now he describes their problem at great length in verses 15 to 17. What is their problem? Well, verse 15, I know your works, but you are neither cold nor hot and would that you were cold or hot, but you are lukewarm. You see what he's saying? He's using the word for freezing cold and boiling hot. What is it that God is looking for from his people? In one word, zeal. That's why he will go on to say, so be zealous. In fact, the word zealous and the word boiling hot are from the same root. It's, it's, it's just a variation on the same idea. What I want from you in contrast to your lukewarmness is that you would be hot and zealous. Now, people have tried to understand, well, what's, what's this then about cold? And you can take those in two different ways. You can, be, you can take it, they're both positive, and he's saying, I wish that you were like Colossae with its cold water or Heriopolis with its hot water because you're neither your lukewarm that's bad or you can take it this way he may be saying i'd rather you be cold the opposite of hot with no life no christian no religion no interest total rejection i would rather you be all against me or all for me but not a mixture that leaves you half hearted don't take a cold heart, he may be saying, and gathered around a bunch of genuine Christians and around the word of Jesus and his gospel and mix in a little Christianity and make that cold, lukewarm and think that's okay. Because it's not. Or he may be saying, don't take a, a zealous heart and imbibe the culture and mix it and become lukewarm. Because that's not okay. 
What does Jesus want? He wants you to be zealous. The problem with the church, with the biggest problem, is the problem of the heart. It's not persecution. It's not heresy. It's here, friends. We are a trouble to ourselves. There's no warmth for the Gospel. No affection for Jesus, he's saying. And what does that look like? What does, what does zeal look like? Remember zeal in the life of the Lord Jesus? That he was moved with zeal to drive out the money changers from the temple in an act of righteous violence. Because zeal for the Lord consumed him. Remember the Apostle Paul? Describing his life before he met Jesus on the road to, to Damascus, he said, I was zealous. I was zealous, but without knowledge. And so I persecuted the church of the God I thought I was serving. It, it is possible to have zeal without knowledge, and that is a very bad thing. You can be zealous for the wrong thing, for a substitute God, like being zealous for SEC football in the place of God. Or you can be zealous and have that zeal misguided and misapplied, like taking up swords, like the Apostle Paul, in order to coerce conversion. Only Jesus in His righteousness has the right to take up and overturn tables in the temple, driving people out with whips. It's not, it's not what He's telling you to do in your zeal, but He wants you to be zealous like they're zealous. And zeal is not a personality type. Do not hear me. You dear, calm-natured accountant types, He is not saying you need to become a hand-raising, eye-closing, verbal mouthpiece of stream-of-consciousness, passion-praying. I wrote that myself. You don't have to be gregarious. You don't have to be filled with emotionalism that bounces off of walls for Jesus. Zeal is not unreasoning. It is not unthinking. It is not unintelligent passion, but it is thoughtful passion and wholehearted devotion. And zeal with knowledge is a good thing and a commendable thing. He says, continually go on being zealous. You know that zeal is an integral part of the first commandment. It is what love for God looks like. What what does it mean to have God as your God? You shall have no other gods before me. It means that you love Him and you honor Him and you're you're zealous for Him. It's to be single-minded like the psalmist who said, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I see, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. I want that one thing. I want You, Lord. It it flows. Where does it come from? It flows from being captured and captivated by His love, by, by being sourced and resourced by His 
Love, it constrains you. And so Paul will say in Corinthians, I have become convinced that he who died, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them. To be zealous is to be constrained by his dying love for you. And so the zeal says, I love you, Lord, but I want to love you more. I know you, Lord, but I want to know you more. I see Jesus lifted high on a cross for me. And I want Him honored. I want Him cherished. I want Him lifted up in my heart and in others' hearts. Because I am eager for Him. And I am eager to see this happen for Him. But He says, you are lukewarm. And so, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 16, he says, they're half-hearted, flabby, limp, lackadaisical, listless, indifferent attitude towards Jesus. He says, makes me want to vomit. That's the language. Some churches, somebody once said, make Jesus want to weep and he grieves for them. Some churches make Jesus angry and he wants to come against them. This church makes Jesus sick. That's what he says. Like like a Starbucks latte that's been sitting around on your counter for three weeks and you mistake it for the hot one you just bought. Ugh. Or cold Sam Adams that sat outside in the hot sun all day. But yet what grace. See, he's, he's explained their problem, and yet what grace. He says, he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, but I haven't done it yet. In fact, I'm going to talk to you about how to remedy this situation. What amazing grace and patience and long-suffering on his part. Now, what... What does this lukewarmness really look like in their lives? He goes on to explain it. And he says, he says, you are self-sufficient and you are self-deluded. Right? Verse 17, for you say, you're lukewarm. How do I know this? For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. I'm doing fine. I got everything I need right here. They're boasting of their wealth. Wealthy people. Do they think that material blessing is a sign of God's blessing? And so, hey, I, 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 may, I got rich. Clearly God is for me and not against me. So we must be right. They haven't taken to heart Hosea chapter 12, where it says of Ephraim, where he boasts, I am very rich, I have become wealthy. And with all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or any sin. You see, you can assume that everything is just fine. Because everything seems fine when the Lord has prospered you. But it doesn't mean so. Or had their wealth made them apathetic, self-interested, and uninterested in that which is spiritual. Wealth can put you to sleep. Right? Or, or the desire for it can draw you away. 
I wonder how you have prospered or not in the latest recession and how deeply or not it has hurt you. Has this recession made you more spiritually earnest? Then we praise the Lord who brings recessions. A taste of poverty is like eating the truth of our spiritual bankruptcy before God. And that is a good thing wherever it happens. Now, for some of you, this recession has simply made you more determined to find a way to be rich in this world, no matter what it costs you your soul. But for some of you, you've been able to kind of sit back and fold your arms and say, I'm doing just fine. Look at the fortress I have built for myself. I have prospered. I don't even need Jesus. That's what your heart is saying. Then be warned, Jesus says. I need nothing. I need to begin to weep in the face of students who, when I ask them, what can I pray for you about? Say, Nothing. It's fine. Really? I'm a mess. I've got 20 prayer requests for you in my saner moments. Really? You're just fine? You don't need Jesus? Well, then you've lost the gospel. Self-sufficient, spiritually self-satisfied, but spiritually bankrupt, Jesus says, you are lukewarm and you are absolutely self-deluded. You don't even know who you are, he says. Don't you see what he says? Don't you realize that you are wretched, poor, blind? That, that, that you are, he says, you are the wretched one. What does an American think of the world but, praise God, I'm American. And they are wretched ones and we need to go help them. But we have all we need. It's easy to fold your arms. It doesn't have to be this way for the rich. Jesus doesn't say, and Paul doesn't say, you got to give it all away and you must be poor to be a Christian. Now maybe you need to give some away because you, you love the gospel. But it is the love of money, not having wealth, that is rebuked in the Bible. Putting your hope in it. And it's so easy to say, they are the wretched one. And Jesus says, you, it's very pointed. You're the wretched one. You're pitiable. You're in need of being pitied. You need mercy. Why? Because you don't even know. You got all that money in the bank that you're poor. You wear beautiful, soft, black wool clothing that everybody else wants, and you think, therefore, you're clothed before God, but you need to have your nakedness covered. You're spiritually bankrupt. Now, this language is very pointed. I do not want you to run off in a huff and skip dinner today. It is pointed language because Jesus is trying to get rich Laodiceans and rich Americans to be poor in spirit. Why? Because blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. They know what they need. And they can't get it themselves. And they just ask. 
and they receive. And so he describes their problem and their lukewarmness. And he goes on to prescribe as a good physician what their soul needs. And he does it by way of counsel and command and offer and promise. He counsels them in the first place. Verse 18, what does he say to them? (laughs) If this is you, what does Jesus say to you? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold and white garments and salve for your eyes. He's advising them to buy to buy what money can't purchase. It's language they understand. Commercially prosperous place, right? Jesus is saying, I want to do business with you. Do business with me. Let's have a business transaction. Purchase from me what money can't buy. Isaiah 55 verse 1, read right here. It's the Old New Testament. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, Jesus is taking the three industries they know. Finance, garments, and medicine. And he's saying salvation isn't found there, it's found in me. A bit imaginatively, I know. But it might be like him saying to us in northwest Arkansas, home of Walmart, J.B. Hunt Trucking and Tyson Chicken. He might be saying to us, you you think that you are well stocked, but your spiritual house is empty. Come shop with me. You think that you're going places, but you are spiritually stranded. Hitch yourself to my transport and I will take you where you need to be. You think that you are well fed on chicken. But you are spiritually starving. Come to me for the meat which feeds your soul. It seems to be what Jesus is doing with them. This language. Have all the gold of the kingdom. My righteousness is like a pure white garment which will cover the filth of your dirty rags because all your righteousness is like a filthy rag. And I will present you acceptable in the sight of a holy God. I can heal your blindness so that you will see a kingdom you never even imagined existed that is better than all the kingdoms of this world. He's saying... Get salvation from me. Do business with me. Does your soul need to do business with Jesus? And then he commands them. So, verse 19, so be zealous and repent. How do you get zeal through repentance? It's not, though, a bare command. You just need to do more. You need to be more. You need to crank it out. You just need to go get this done. The command tells you what you need to do, but it has, as all the commands do, it has no power within itself to help you do what the command tells you you should do. Repentance isn't work more and try harder, but repentance is the saving grace of God at work in your life when God's Word comes to you and His grace hits home. And you discover what you are supposed to be, but you are not. 
And you see, you see His zeal for you. And you see mercy and kindness from God offered to you in Christ. And you see Jesus stretch out His arms for you on the cross and stretch out His hands to you, extending the offer of salvation. And you say, I am lukewarm. And you grieve that sin. And you begin to hate that sin. And you begin to say, Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And change me. And give to me what I cannot give to myself. As Augustine said it, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Be zealous, he says. And get it from him. He's the source of it, right? And do you see, do you see how his heart of love is laid out before you? He says, why am I telling you this? I have loved you. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve here. He's saying, he's saying, you know, if I cared nothing for you, I would not even have written you this letter. Why bother? But I did because I love you. And he doesn't say repent so that I may love you. He says, I love you. Now repent. You see the appeal of his heart of love for you? He's zealous with love for his people. So be zealous for him. That's his command. And then he makes an offer. His offer is in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Why are they lukewarm? Because they are so distant from the source of the heat. And why are they so distant? Not because Jesus left. It's knocking. But because they in their heart of hearts have left Him and closed Him out and shut Him off. There are echoes here. Echoes of the Song of Solomon, the great love poem the great romance poetry of the Old Testament where the bridegroom stands outside the door of the bedchamber and knocks for his wife, waiting for her to open the door and to let him in that she might open to me, he says, my sister, my love, that they might complete their love in the consummation of the marriage bed. They might enjoy fellowship, union, and communion, an interpersonal relationship in the most intimate possible way. Now, the metaphor is different here. I stand at the door and knock, and I want to dine with you. Let's sit at a table together, Jesus says. Let's talk. Let's laugh. Let's share jokes. Let's lay out our concerns. Let's feed together because... We're friends. You see what he's saying? He wants to share life with his people. I have an interesting habit. One that I guess that you do not have. I invite myself to dinner. I know you're saying, well, you're a pastor. Is that okay? You're thinking, well, that's kind of rude. We don't do that around here. I do it all the time. I invite myself to the best meals out there. I invite myself to weddings. I don't crash weddings I haven't been invited to. But I tell my REF students who are engaged in getting married, you're going to send me an invitation, aren't you? 
I wish I could respond to them all. I wish I could come to all of them. I want to know they're getting married. I want to hear about the day. We want to send them something. We want to participate in life with them. I want to be there at their meal. I want to see them vow. I want to share the joy of that day with them. And I want, to, I want them to know I want to be there. In the days of sorrow in their marriage. Because I want to share life with them. Jesus is saying, I, I want to share life with you. So he invites himself to dinner. It's his offer to you. And it's promise. His promise is found in verse 21. And he's saying this. If you will allow me to sit at your table, I will allow you to sit with me on my throne. For the one who conquers, he says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is just as it was promised in the Old Testament in Daniel 7. You know what Jesus has offered to you? That the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey them. Just as at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 22, it says that John looks and he sees a river of the water of life flowing down out of the city of God from the very throne of God and entering into the middle of the city. And there, there God and the Lamb dwell in that city. And His servants worship Him and His servants see His face. And in verse 5, and they will reign forever and ever on His throne with Him. Can you imagine that? Do you see the zeal that Jesus has for His people? Oh. Let us be zealous for Him. He who is in here. Let Him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that zeal could not atone for our sin that You did out of zeal for us. Would you strip away all the idols and affections of our heart which stand in the way of loving you? In your name we pray. Amen.